This is Truth, Justice, and Hope, the podcast that explores the modern era of Superman comics from a humanist perspective and examines real life through the lens of a Superman fan. I'm Grant Richter, and this is episode 61. Truth and justice, my friends, and welcome back to the show. I am a huge sucker for a major crossover event. I am rarely as satisfied with them as I am excited for them. But this episode, we are going to talk about the first, begin talking about the first major crossover event to hit DC since Rebirth. That is, we are going to cover the one of the prelude issues to Dark Knight's Metal. We are going to be talking about Dark Days The Forge, which came out June 14th of 2017. But to build into that, we are also going to discuss Action Comics number 981 and Superman number 24. And those two issues will continue, respectively, the Revenge story arc and the Black Dawn story arc. And this is a excellent batch of comics, this episode. So, as usual, I am excited to talk about it, but I'm especially excited to talk about it this week. But first, as always, I have some thoughts from here at the Fortress of Solitude. Now, in Zack Snyder's Man of Steel, there are a few scenes that are controversial among friends. I'm not going to go into the rest of them, but one of them is the tornado scene. And if you're not familiar, it is the scene where when young adult Clark, maybe older teenager Clark, is in the truck with Ma and Pa, and a hurricane hits the area, and Pa is not able to get away, and Clark starts to use his speed and strength to go save Pa, but Pa signals him to stand down to protect his secret, and Clark does, and Pa dies. And this is controversial for a couple reasons. One, that version of Pa, played by Kevin Costner, is not the Pa who wants Clark to share his gifts with the world. He wants... Clark to stay safe, to keep his his abilities hidden. And two, it's controversial because Clark listens. And as a Superman fan, I can think of multiple ways that Clark could have saved Pa and still kept his secret safe. But that's not that's neither here nor there. <laughs> that is an excuse for me to talk about what I really want to talk about this week. And that is Tornadoes. And no, this is not going to be a science lesson. Um, but having grown up in Ohio in Tornado Alley, um, I lived with the threat of tornadoes all of my childhood. We would have, 
In addition to regular fire drills, we would have regular tornado drills when I was growing up as a kid, and I, you pretty much handle those the same way you, you would a nuclear bomb drill, which was you hide under your desk. And now, if you, if you were a person of my generation and you were going to school in the early 80s, you might remember nuclear, nuclear bomb drills. They're neither, again, they are near, neither here nor there, but it is funny. Um, but I digress. Um, we lived so far out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and my grandmother on my dad's side lived in another rural town that was also really far out in the middle of nowhere. And even though it was an hour and a half drive between my house and my grandma's house, you could not take the freeway to get there. You had to take back roads the whole 90 minute drive. And one spring when I was in elementary school, my grandma and one of her friends, uh, my grandpa on that side of my family had passed away when I was much younger, drove the hour and a half from my grandma's house to my house, to pick me up, hung out there for a couple hours, talked to my mom and dad, and drove me back to my grandma's house. And on the way, we had to pass through kind of what what passed for the center of town for that area. And, <clears throat> excuse me, on our way back, in the few hours that my grandma and her friend had left her house, and hung out and drove me back, a tornado had sprung up out of nowhere and ripped through this little town. And I remember my grandma's friend, like, breaking down and crying in the car and me being a nice little kid and trying to, you know, comfort her and stuff. And I remember, like, this church in the middle of town was wiped out and there's a whole bunch of houses that were destroyed and a bunch of small businesses. And that was the first time. I, I fortunately never had to live through an actual tornado touchdown as a kid. We had some close calls, but that was the that was the only time I really saw the destruction from a tornado, and it was impactful. And that kind of thing is really stuck with me. And now, of course, I live on I live in coastal Florida, where instead of tornadoes in the springtime, it's hurricanes in the fall. Um, so I am no stranger to the, the damage that massive inclement weather can cause. And I am, I'm the kind of person I will follow like weather alerts on Twitter from like the National Hurricane Center and stuff like that. Um, so it boggles my mind when recently I've been seeing where um, when weather agencies have been sending out alerts for people in the paths or tornadoes, and there's been a lot this time of year, this year, um, people are mocking those alerts on social media. And they're calling them fake news, and they're making fun of the alerts, saying that people are panicking over nothing. And I'm sure... There's got to be a small handful in every one of those areas of people that paid attention to the mockery of the alerts and disregarded them and paid the price for it. And again, that blows my mind that someone could do that. That is straight up evil. 
in my opinion. And when it comes to people doing unethical things, I like to try to get inside their head. Um, like I've said, I, I used to work in, um, in criminal detention and I did, when, it, when you work in that line of work, eventually you're going to have to use some force at some time because there's going to be somebody violent. But I always like to make sure that that was the last resort, especially when I was actually a supervisor and was, you know, kind of calling the shots is how we we're going to do things. So if you get inside why a person acts the way they do, it's easier to maybe not empathize with them, but to get, if you can see it from their point of view, you can maybe talk them down and and get them to be more cooperative if you have you know some sort of if not empathy but understanding of why they're doing what they're doing i cannot understand why someone would do this i understand um and i, do, I obviously don't agree with it i i see the twisted logic of people who um try to convince others that things like vaccines aren't real because there's got to be there's something in their psyche that makes them want to feel special and if they if they think they have this secret knowledge that vaccines really don't work um or that the vaccines are really intended to harm you or any other kind of conspiracy it gives people with that kind of low self-esteem a feeling of specialness and you know there's also people who do it for in an agenda like you know, we don't want to look bad that we were the people in charge when this pandemic hit so we're going to pretend like there's no problem and therefore we're going to mock the solution to this problem we don't want to admit so i i can see why people do things like that i can see why a lot of people do a lot of really unethical things i cannot see the logic behind this behavior because the only thing the only outcome of it is people potentially getting hurt or people really getting hurt. There's, I mean, I, it, it just blows my mind. I, I, I can see the logic behind trolling. It, it serves an agenda or it just makes, again, it makes a person feel special. But there, I can't imagine what kind of agenda would come out of ignoring a hazardous weather advisory or how pretending to, you know, disbelieve or actually disbelieving uh, a hazardous weather advisor. I don't, I don't see how that makes that person feel special or unique or anything like that. Um, so if you are in an area that is experiencing uh, or it has the potential to experience hazardous weather this tornado season, please... <laughs> be aware of the alerts on TV, on radio, on social media, on the, the alerts that pop up on your phone. Please, when the alerts say, take shelter now, by all means, take shelter now, because I want everybody to stay safe and healthy, and I don't want anybody to be fall victim to what I think of as life-threatening trolling. And those are all the thoughts I have about that. So let's go talk about some comic books.
right, we are going to begin our comic book journey this week with Superman number 24. This issue is cover dated June 7th of 2017. And this issue is written by Patrick Gleason and Peter Tomasi. Doug Mankey and Patrick Gleason both co-penciled. Jaime Mendoza, Mick Gray, Joe Prado, and Doug Mankey all co-inked. Will Quintana and John Calise and Hi-Fi co-colored. Rob Lee's The Letter, Ryan Sook did the main cover, and Jorge Jimenez and Alejandro Sanchez did the variant cover. And the main cover is of John in his Superboy outfit, all lit up with some kind of purple crackling energy, and it's crackling out of his eyes and across his hands and around his body, and he's floating in midair with his cape hovering up behind him. Uh, Clark, in his Superman outfit, is laying on the ground, stunned, while Lois kind of kneels over Clark's body, um, not body, but uh, half-conscious form, with one hand uh, protectively on his shoulder and the other hand out, uh, other hand held out pleadingly toward John with her hair blowing in the like energy wind. And it's a really, really good cover. The variant is also equally excellent. Of course it is. It's by Jorge Jimenez. And it is of John again in his Superboy outfit with Manchester black with one arm around John's shoulders. And John, has his hands balled in the fist, and he's looking down at Superman, who's on the ground with his hands held up placatingly, and Manchester Black is kneeling next to John, and he has this grin of malevolent triumph on his face and one hand balled into a fist. And they're both excellent covers. It would be very hard to, to decide which one to get if I saw these on the shelf. Now, the book opens... Some time ago, it just says then. And we see a young girl with blonde hair and green skin. And she's in some kind of space gear getup. So she is an alien girl. And her mom and dad have just been killed. And someone behind her, so which we can very clearly determine to be Manchester Black by his, by his speech... Uh, he says, out, sorry, you had to watch that love, which I could have saved them too. And he says the Krug attacked and they killed them. And uh, apparently Manchester had tried to warn uh, the people that this young girl was with. And even though he's saying words of sympathy, you can tell he's not empathetic at all. He's like, yep, breaks my heart. Sure does. Um, I'm not, again, I'm not going to try to do Manchester Black's accent. Um, and he says, peaceful solutions always sound nice, but real truth and justice, they're one thing to claw, no room for hesitation. Black is black, white is white. She asks if he can help them, and he says, all you have to do is ask, love. We pull back, and we see that a green-skinned couple, the girl's mom and dad, are, are clearly dead, and we see a another figure who is of the same race kneeling over them. We see a, a alien with very grayish white skin and very long arms. We see an alien woman with red skin. Um, we see an alien male with a yellow face and some kind of blue body armor. And these, uh, for those of you that have been reading this book so far, who followed me last episode, 
I know I said I was going to wait two weeks to follow up from the last episode, but I couldn't leave you guys hanging with Lois's leg apparently cut off. We got to find out what happens, right? Now, these um, are very clearly the the townsfolk of Hamilton County who we found out were aliens last episode. We have Candace, the, the lady who runs the local newspaper. We have the town doctor. We have the mayor. We have the town sheriff. And the green-skinned people are supposed to be Lois and Clark's neighbor, Cobb, a dairy farmer, and his granddaughter, Kathy. And they're all aboard a spaceship, and there are portals opening in the middle of this, what looks like the middle of the spaceship. I think what we're seeing is a giant view screen. And we're seeing portals open in space in all kinds of giant um, creatures that look somewhat like Earth animals, only distorted and different, coming through these portals. And these are the types of creatures we've been seeing throughout this series. We have a giant squid and a giant um, like lobster shrimp creature. And we see giant bats. And uh, Kathy, by the way, is holding a stuffed animal that looks very much like a pink and purple puppy. Only it has six legs instead of four, which is very cute. And we see that the leader of the Krug the 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 race that is attacking these apparently refugees is um i forget their name but they are the alien refugee that had disguised itself as candace and it was being hunted by frankenstein and the bride several episodes and issues ago um so all of these aliens have been hiding out in Hamilton County, including this bad guy who is a, some kind of warlord. And um, again, Manchester Black says, you know, I'll help you, but you all have to be in on it. Every one of you has to ask me for help. And they all do. They said, we don't have any choices. And uh, we see like more and more of the Krug invading the ship. Manchester Black just points one finger at them, like, you know, finger guns, pulls the thumb trigger, and the alien's head explodes. Um, I'll be real honest, other than this, the only stuff I've read recently with Manchester Black in it is Superman and the Authority, and then Johnson's run on Action Comics, the War World Saga. I don't remember him having telekinesis. In those issues, um, maybe it was a thing from before, um, it's from the early 2000s when Black was more prominent. It's been a while since I've read those. I don't straight up remember. But um, they somehow open a portal. They take the ship through the portal to Earth with several of the aliens clinging onto it. So we see these giant squid and the giant bats and all that. And Black says, right now you're like newborn lambs, all soft and wobbly-like, stepping into the cold, dark world. I'll teach you how to grow fangs. I'll teach you how to protect what's yours. I'll teach you how to kill the wolves and be elite among men. So we cut from there to now in Hamilton County.
And in the last episode, the mayor, the doctor, and the sheriff had all revealed their true forms, and they had responded to attacks by these giant alien creatures. Again, giant bat, giant lobster, giant squid. And the three of them killed these creatures. Superman was helping them fight the creatures off, but every time Superman would get one of them restrained, one of the aliens would come in and kill it because that's what Manchester Black has trained them to do. Now, I should pause here and say, if you're new to the show, welcome. If this is your first episode, you may want to go back a few episodes to get caught up on this story arc. I'm going to do my best to kind of do flashbacks as we get to them. But to really get the whole picture of what we're talking about from the B from just before the beginning of the Rebirth era, I highly recommend that you start episode one and start going forward. Episode one covers the the uh, Lois and Clark uh, two-parter of Convergence. It goes into the Lois and Clark miniseries from there, and it gives you all the backstory you need to know going forward. Um, so... Um, Clark, at this point, knows that there's something going on with Cobb. Lois knows there's something going on with Cobb. Uh, Cobb has not revealed his true form. He looks like an, an older, stout, white guy with glasses, white hair, and a mustache. Um, he kind of looks, he kind of reminds me of what John Ratzenberger from Cheers looks like now. Um, and he is not pleased with how his friends and fellow refugees have responded to this. Um, the mayor, the sheriff, uh, the doctor, oh yeah, also the school teacher, are all in on Manchester Black's way of doing things. Cobb is not. He is more moderate about this. He's like, yes, we need to keep ourselves secret. We need to take care of John. John is a big part of Manchester Black's plot, his plan, whatever that is but the others don't agree. They're all in. They're like, look, if something comes after us, we are going to kill it so it doesn't come after us any further, which goes back to Manchester Black's first appearance when he first appeared with the elite, where his whole thing was, look, criminals deserve to die so they don't continue to crime. And that's obviously antithetical to how Superman deals with wrongdoers. And so Cobb says, look, I demand an audience with Black right now to discuss what's going on. And the mayor says, nope, out of the questions. Um, I will bring it up to you. Um, but the mayor orders him, him and Kathy to go home and mind their business. And their business, again, is kind of looking out for John. And since John is already in Black's custody... They don't really have a function and they're being ordered to stand down. So we go from there to the Hamilton County Hospital where Lois is being treated for a severed leg. And in the last issue of the series, last episode, Superman was fighting this giant lobster creature. He wrapped it up in a bunch of scrap metal. It burst free. The scrap metal, you know, shrapnel... Uh, went everywhere, and a huge piece of it seemingly cut off one of Lois's legs mid-thigh. Um, 
well, don't worry. We don't. Unfortunately, we do not get any follow up on that this this issue. We will get follow up on it very very soon. If you haven't read this, don't worry. We are going to talk about it. But Clark just does not understand. You know, he he he's he's very upset that these town people who he's come to trust could act like this and like you know Superman doesn't care if they're aliens or not. He cares about being lied to, but he he cannot understand how these like the the guy who's teaching his son science could could be so violent in stopping wrongdoing. The town sheriff, the mayor, the doctor, all this stuff. But Lois is like, look, you cannot focus on that. You cannot focus on me. You've got to find John. She says, I trust you. I have trust in our family and the life we have together. Most of all, I trust that you'll always do the right thing, even if it kills you, because that's the man I married. Now get up, Clark Kent. And we see Clark open his shirt, exposing the Superman ass. And on the next page, we have him standing in the full Superman costume, looking out the window. And it's a great shot, because everything behind him is all in black. And he's only lit up by the light like the sunset light coming through the slats in the blinds. And it's a really great panel. And Lois says, we need Superman. And she looks sadly as he flies up on the window. I really like what Lois says here. Um, my wife and I finally got Apple TV. We finally started watching uh, Ted Lasso, which I my new favorite show. As much as I like Ted, I love Roy Kent. Um, but I also really, really like Keely. Keely is an amazing character. If you haven't watched the show, you need to. Um, there's one scene where, um, Keely's boss is also Ted's boss, Roy's boss is debating. She's having like an, an ethical conundrum as to whether or not to get one of the soccer players who was trying to stand up for his beliefs. And Keely tells her, you always do the right thing, even if it makes you lose. I really like that. That really echoes what Lois is talking about here. If you're not watching Ted Lasso, and if you have the means and opportunity to get Apple TV, I, I highly recommend you do so. But back to the comic book. Superman flies out to Cobb's house, and he lifts it off of the, off of the foundations, <laughs> which is like, this is Clark not messing around. He is not worried about property damage at this point. This also is where we switch from um, uh, Tomasi's pencils to Mankey's pencils. Um, Tomasi's, like I said, the, the image of Clark with the black background and the light coming through the blinds is great. It's very reminiscent of, uh, of Golden Age. It's very reminiscent of Golden Age Shazam slash Captain Marvel. But now we're on to Doug Mankey, who is my favorite penciler of all time. Eh, okay, it's a toss-up between Mankey and Jimenez. But, yeah, it's great. So he rips up the base of the house. He sees these mechanized roots growing under Cobb's farm. And he says there must be an entire network under Hamilton leading back to the central complex in Dead Man's Swamp. And Dead Man's Swamp is this area where John and Kathy went exploring one time. And they were they experienced 
massive hallucinations of giant animals coming to get them. And I don't think it's outright explained, but I think uh, it's shown that Cobb and Kathy have some kind of telekinesis. I assume they have some kind of at least low-level telepathy. And Cobb and Kathy were both doing these hallucinations to kind of scare John away to keep him out of this area. Um, but uh, as Superman began scanning these tunnels with his X-ray vision, John shows up behind him. And um, he rushes to John. John's crying. He's like, what happened to Mom? He made me watch. Why didn't you do something? And of course, he was doing something. But when we last saw John, he was being held captive by Black. He's strapped into this like clockwork orange-style chair and being made to watch all these images of Superman coming across as ineffective because while he's trying to humanely take care of these creatures that are rampaging through town, um, the other aliens are killing them to make them stop faster and you could argue more efficiently. Um, and of course it was Superman's efforts to restrain the lobster monster that got Lois seemingly seriously injured. And Superman says, who made you watch? And that is where he turns around and finds Manchester Black. And Black says, can you believe the filth they allow on the telly these days? And of course, Black is sneering and he's got a cigarette in his hand. Superman turns around and just immediately blasts him with heat vision. He is not get, trying to give Black any leeway to do anything because he knows how powerful of a telepath Black is. But Black again, now has some kind of telekinesis ability. I have to wonder if he's maybe, um, it's been a while since I've read this and I'm, I'm trying to not read ahead. I'm wondering if Black is somehow siphoning off the abilities of these other aliens. And again, Cobb and Kathy have really powerful telekinesis. And he, he makes the heat vision stop in midair and he even lights his cigarette off of like where the heat vision stops. And when he looks up, one of his eyes looks normal and the other is filled with like pure blackness. And he lashes out with some kind of telekinesis that sends Superman flying. Um, he lands in front of John and Kathy's special trees, this huge tree out in the middle of their field that they always play around and sit in to talk. John accidentally set it on fire with his heat vision when Kathy ambushed him and is now seemingly still on fire. And Black says it's called a, call it a telepath visual aid. So again, I wonder if it is, it's like a hallucination or maybe Black is psychokinetically agitating the molecules to do functional pyrokinesis. I don't know. Um, but uh, Black is saying, we always knew I'd find my way back carrying a torch for you and all of that. Again, before this, I don't remember what happened to Black. The last I remember seeing him was in Our Worlds at War, which is, what, 2001? I'm sure he's been back since then. I have a lot of gaps in my reading from the early 2000s. One, just because I'm not crazy about that era. Um, the writer I like most who worked on those stories is Greg Rucka, and most of his stories, most of his issues aren't on the app. So, you know, and I'm not, I don't, I haven't hunted them down yet. So I don't know what happened to Manchester Black between Our Worlds at War and this. But he says, 
Um, he says, gave my head a wobble around space-time for a while. I found my way back to settle the score. And lo and behold, there was a child. I says to myself, Manchester old man, the dad's a dud. We all know this. But the kid, he has a chance to be great. And um, John is pleading with Black to stop. He's saying, you're hurting my dad. Um, Black is just blasting Clark with telekinesis. And um, and he Black tells John to shush. And John just stops. And he's obviously miserable. There's tears running down his face. But he's just kind of blank stare. And he's not moving. Clark looks up and he says, sick him. Really quietly. And then Crypto comes out of nowhere. And grabs Black by the right wrist just chomps down and then Clark grabs Black by the neck slams him down and starts punching him just as hard as he can he's saying I could kill you but Black is barely faced all he has is a bloody nose and he says you're always good for a laugh Clark again Black's a telepath and that's people talk about kryptonite being Superman's biggest weakness they talk about magic because he's vulnerable to it in my opinion, telepathy is the biggest danger to Superman, especially in this era where Superman's secret identity wasn't public knowledge. That is scary, scary stuff. And that's why I like Blank so much. Even though he is you know, pretty one-dimensional, he's got a lot of potential for being really, really scary. And uh, I, my assumption at this point is Black is protecting himself with his telekinesis. And Black says, if you were capable of that, why aren't we having a toast over the course of Darkseid or any of the other bad guys that spoil the innocent? See, John, a real hero with your dad's power would put an end to the hurt and suffering. Spare their innocent their pain, but not your glorious pop. For all his preaching and jazzy new kecks, we know he's full of fluff. Mark my word, days coming where there'll be no place for his brand of wave and smile. Gentle green cleaner salt to good intention housewives won't cut it. We need steel, wool, and bleach. John uh, accuses Black of stealing his powers. That is why Batman came to town in the first place, to investigate why John isn't more powerful than he already is. Uh, by now, Black has completely subdued Crypto. Crypto is just standing on his hind legs and letting himself being petted on the head. Again, I'm assuming it's a telepathy thing. Black telekinetically pulls the skeleton of the cat that John accidentally incinerated with his heat vision out of the ground and makes it stand there like a real cat. Meanwhile, this black goo is puddling up from out of, seemingly from under Black's feet. It pulls around the cat's skeleton. It pulls up under Crypto. It goes past Superman and begins climbing up Superman's legs. And it grows into this big kind of like tree made out of an animated black tar and it's choking him and holding him in place and meanwhile these containment bubbles that house Batman, Robin Frankenstein, the bride and uh, a few local troublemakers it pulls up again to this big like tree like monolith that's made out of this organic technology Black says I was planning the long con Blinding the town, grooming John bit by bit, power by power, to grow into a better hero than his dad, all until the meddling know-it-alls forced my hand. Talking about Batman and Robin. I've seen the future, and it's going to need him, not you. Um, and let's see. He goes on to say, our ship 
hit a quantum rift that closed around it and is quite unstable. But me and the ship are the finger in the dike between mom, apple pie, and a world of never-ending monsters. Um, Clark asked why Black doesn't kill him. He said that would just make him into a martyr, which would make John sympathize with him anymore. Um, and he says, so we'll just do the old men in black Jedi mind trick and you won't remember it remember a thing the elite and i will watch over john till he's of age you can go online to yourselves ad infinitum um black pulls the krug war criminal out of the pod holds him by the neck and it looks like he's about to drive his fingers through his eyes he says john ever executed a war criminal before john crosses his arms and said i'll die first superman will and by now, the black goo is running out of Black's eyes down his face. And he says, yeah, don't talk to me about him again. It's a mistake. Uh, Cobb and Kathy come up out of nowhere. And they both lash out at Manchester Black with their telekinesis, knocking him down, giving Superman the opportunity to break free. Um, Black lashes back out at them um, and kills Cobb. We see him revert to his alien form, and um, he tells uh, Kathy not to be afraid. Kathy is mad now, and she lashes back out at Black. He fights with her on some kind of psychic battle. Meanwhile, Superman lashes out with his heat vision and frees Batman, Robin, Frankenstein, and the Bride from their containment. Um, to to fight on his side. And Black says, fine, you've got your Superman friends. I've got my Superboy elite. Let's have a go. And he directs the Black Goo to, to whip up out of the ground and cover John and the four other alien refugees. Again, the mayor, the science teacher, the sheriff, and, um, and the doctor. And they're all now covered in black versions of their of John's costume and the alien's armor. And John is telling Black to get out of his head. Uh, he says, Superman, help. Black says, I said, don't say his name. And John's head snaps back. And when it rises back up, at first he is he is crying. But then... The black goo runs up his body and mingles with his tears and goes into his eyes, making John's eyes solid black. Uh, by now, the black goo is rising up out of the center of the town itself, this giant tower that is spreading these tendrils across the sky like like or like thick, tarry clouds. And um, uh, but so and I'm sorry, it's just a stunning image. Like everything, it's very Stranger Things. Let me put it that way. And so with the bride, with Frankenstein, with Batman and Robin standing behind her, standing behind him, they all brace themselves as John, uh, who is now completely under Black's control, along with these four other extremely powerful aliens, begin to attack them. This is a really, really good issue. I apologize for not having closure on what's going on with Lois's leg. Again, we will get to that 
next issue of this series. Um, I'm not sure exactly when that's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be next week or the week after because the introduction of uh, Dark Knight's Metal into the reading rotation has made everything kind of cattywampus right now. But we will get to it very, very soon. So make sure you check back with me in the next few weeks. But in the meantime, I am going to take a quick break. And when I come back, we will talk about Action Comics number 981. Stay with me. Action Comics number 981 is cover dated June 14th of 2017. This issue is written by Dan Jurgens with art by Jack Herbert, an artist whose work I'm not previously familiar with. Colors are by Hi-Fi, letters are by Rob Lee. Uh, Patrick Zercher and Hi-Fi did the main cover, and Gary Frank and Brad Anderson did the variant. Now, the main cover has probably the most to do with the actual issue. It is of Superman kneeling on the ground in front of General Zod, who is wearing his armor that was introduced during the New 52. Um, and then behind Zod are standing Metallo, the Eradicator, Blank, uh, Mongol, and then the organizer of this new Superman Revenge Squad, the Cyborg Superman. And it is a good cover. Again, I have ceased being... Uh, a huge fan of Zercher's uh, pencils. Um, they're fine. They're serviceable. It just, they're, my taste is elsewhere. The variant cover has nothing at all to do with this issue, but it is freaking amazing. It's by Gary Frank again, and it's Superman fighting a dragon. And it's this huge like worm-like dragon with this purple head and the body kind of fades into green below the neck and its back is on the ground and Superman is standing over it and it looks, yeah, he's impaled the pole of a stop sign through its chest, pinning him to the ground and this dragon's long tongue is snaking around behind Superman's back and wrapping around his arm. Actually, no, 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 I take that back. Um... The, the dragon wrapped its tongue around Superman's arm. Superman has ripped its tongue off. And its claws are reaching for him. And its body is spiraling up away in a bat. And again, it has nothing to do with this issue. But this cover is so incredibly good. If I was getting the hard copies of this series when it was coming out, I absolutely would have gone for this cover, and I would have been kind of disappointed <laughs> that Superman did not fight a dragon in it. Um, probably, it, it it's probably more like the, the Nazgul beasts from the Lord of the Rings movies than an actual dragon. It is such an amazing cover. I will probably use this as the thumbnail for this issue, it, even though it has nothing to do with the plot. It's so, so good. Now, in the last issue of the series, and again, if you're new to the show, welcome. I love having you on board. Um, I would highly recommend that for all the backstory involved in everything that's going on, that you start with, uh, I would at least rewind by a few episodes to start this story from the beginning. And 
I would highly recommend starting from episode one um, to get the whole buildup of everything that's been going on so far. But again, in the last issue, uh, Superman was trying to beat the Eradicator and the Cyborg Superman. Uh, he was starting to stop them from breaking in to um, to the prison that um, the, the Suicide Squad works out works out of, and that prison has been covered by this huge black dome of some kind of alien technology. And this thing assaults your mind with telepathic hallucinations of your greatest fears. And um, the Eradicator, because he's not organic, isn't susceptible. The Cyborg Superman was partly susceptible. Superman is completely susceptible, so he did the worst out of the three. The, the Eradicator and the Cyborg accomplished their objective of breaking Zod out of this prison. Superman, however, is still trapped in this black dome, and his hallucination is of zombies of all his friends and loved ones attacking him, blaming him for their deaths. And we have John, we have Lois, Mon Pa, Jor-El and Lara, Jimmy and Perry, and just like dozens and dozens of people going back into the background for infinity. And um, he tells, he doesn't realize he's hallucinating these 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 hallucinations are so powerful. He grabs the lowest zombie by the shoulders and said, I would never do anything to let any of you down. Lois says, what about the Kents? You let them down. Uh, keeping in mind at this point, uh, in Superman's continuity, it has incorporated the, the elements of the new 52 Superman's continuity in which the Kents died in a car crash while Clark was at prom. That, I believe, will change after um, Doomsday Clock, which we will get to in a few months, um, optimistically. Um, but um, he's still distraught about that. Um, but before anything else can happen, the dome collapses. And, and Amanda Waller and her team, uh, after the dome, which is called the Black Vault, after it dissipates, they find Superman uh, face down, unconscious, in like a pit that he has created with the force of his thrashings about. And uh, and Waller says that uh, that Superman probably has no idea whatsoever that Zod is on the loose. Excuse me. Um, it is pollen season, and I'm a little sniffly. Um, we go from there to somewhere in the swamp outside of this prison and where we have Zod and the Eradicator and the Cyborg kind of regrouping. And a lot of what happened with Zod took place in the Suicide Squad series. I have read it. I do not care for it enough to really talk about on the series other than a summary that Waller used uh, Kryptonian surgical devices, not Kryptonian, Kryptonite surgical devices, to implant a bomb in Zod's brain. Zod was able to remove the bomb 
Um, and you know, the basically what we get is that Zod was going to break out of this prison, whether the cyborg or the eradicator helped or not. They just happened to come along as he was breaking himself out. So he feels no loyalty to these two, especially because they're wearing the symbol of the House of El. He refers to Henshaw's freak. Um, he doesn't seem to recognize the Eradicator, which makes sense. The In this revised continuity, um, the Eradicator started out as a AI, um, like robot, that worked for Zod. He was one of an army of like peacekeeping robots, and they had um, kind of a phantom zone, like a miniature phantom zone inside of them, and they would banish undesirables to this miniature phantom zone. And this eradicator is the last eradicator. It was caught in the explosion that destroyed Krypton, but it was far enough away that he wasn't destroyed, but his his shape, his form was forever altered. Um, but it it feels like a misstep that he doesn't go, oh, an artificial life form called the Eradicator, are you any relation to these robots that followed me? But again, that took place in the eponymous Superman series. And Jurgens and Tomasi and Gleason don't seem to have the best communication between the two books. That is one of my few um, criticisms of this era. But he... Zod threatens to destroy Henshaw. He, I get the impression here that Zod is much more powerful than Henshaw is. Um, he, he grabs Henshaw by the throat, uh, threatened to pretty much pop his head off, and uh, like coughing and gasping, Henshaw says that they can help each other. And, uh, and Zod says, well, the only way that you can help me is if you have a Phantom Zone projector, and Henshaw says, well, that's how we can help each other. And Zod's like, bah, you have nothing I want. I work with no one. And the Eradicator is the voice of reason. And basically, they're they're trying to get Zod to help them invade the Fortress of Solitude where there is a Phantom Zone projector. But And Zod's like, look, why do you want to help me? And the Eradicator says, because Kal-El has abandoned Kryptonian purity, and he must die for that, and the, and the impurity, being John, must be purged. Um, Henshaw wants revenge. Zod's like, I don't care about any of that. My first agenda is to get my army out of the Phantom Zone. After that, and if I feel like it, then I will help the two of you. But he does agree to at least allow them to tag along. So even though Henshaw is like, it's my Superman revenge squad, Zod has taken charge very, very quickly. Um, so we go from there to back inside the prison. And, um, and Waller is saying, it looks like the Black Vault did a number on you. Um, it can disorient anyone, even you. Rick Flagg turned it off. An alarm goes off, and... Sorry about the background noise. And uh, the alarm is louder than what Superman can handle, almost. Like, it hurts his ears, but it's not any louder 
than a normal alarm. So something is definitely going on. And this whole time, we're not really seeing Superman's eyes. He either has his eyes closed or they're in shadow. And from his pers- when we see things from Superman's perspective, we just see a black background. We have kind of the, the visual representation of the sound waves and like the sound effect of the alarm to Aru. And Superman's thinking, the vault, what did it do to me? That siren's so loud. My God, I can't dot, dot, dot. But then the, the thought caption cuts off. And uh, um, Superman really had no idea that Zod was in this prison. All he knew was that the Eradicator and the Cyborg were going to the prison for some reason. Whatever it was, it couldn't be good. And uh, But in the background, Rick Flagg is like, Amanda Waller, you know, Director Waller, Zod is gone. Superman says, Zod, he was here. And uh, Superman demands to know why. Waller says to act as the ultimate weapon, of course, even against you if necessary. As Superman flies off, he says, your tactics are deplorable. Uh, and Waller says, don't get so high and mighty with me, Superman. My job is to keep people safe, and Zod helped me do that. You might have to make that choice yourself someday. Kill or let someone you love die. What will you do? And as he flies off, we see that Superman's eyes are open, but it looks like it might be a coloring mistake, but his eyes are not colored. The, The blue of his eyes are not colored in. And, but when we see everyone else's eyes, they're very, very distinct. So, hmm, might be something going on there. Um, so Zod asks where they're going, and um, the Eradicate says they are going to the moon. It's a good place to, to regroup and, and, and formulate their attack. And uh, Zod is kind of debating back and forth with them about whether or not he's going, going on with their plan. But then Superman zips in out of nowhere, smacks into the three of them, says, this ends now. They all go flying. Uh, Zod takes off flying after Superman, and Superman's thought caption says, that's Zod, all right. Now, we have, we, the audience, have not seen Zod since the New 52. And, but remember that this version of Superman has most of New 52 Superman's experiences now, and those continuities have merged. So as far as from Superman's perspective, even though we've never seen it, this merged Superman dealt with this version of Zod sometime in the past. It is confusing. (laughs) It is kind of convoluted. I don't hate what they're doing here, because I'm a continuity nerd. I love continuity. I have no problem with this jangled, convoluted continuity. I think it's fun. But from a, from the perspective as someone explaining it to other people who may or may not be familiar with it, I am looking forward to when it gets streamlined again. Okay. Um, but Zod notes out that Zod notices that Superman's reflexes are slow. And he is able to give Superman a good hard punch across the jaw. The Eradicator grabs him, but uh, Henshaw says, no, he's mine. Superman's laying there limp, 
and the Eradicator says no response is as if something is wrong. But then Superman stops playing possum and blasts him with his heat vision. Um, he grabs the Eradicator, spins around real fast, throws him into Henshaw. Now, while this is going on in National City, young Kara Danvers, the secret identity of Supergirl, is watching all this happen on the news. There is a news helicopter nearby that is broadcasting this back to Catco. And, um, um, in, uh, upstate Metropolis on a bullet train going back, uh, it says upstate from Metropolis. It doesn't say what direction it's going, but Lois is watching this on her phone and John is upset, obviously, that the Eradicator is back. Back above uh, Louisiana, uh, Superman is looking, I would say, looking around for Zod. But all he says, I can't account for Zod. I have to find him. And he moves like a ghost. Maybe I can detect his heartbeat. But then Zod attacks him from the back. Lex Luthor in Metropolis is watching all this and tells Mercy to cancel all his appointments for the day. The cyborg piles on. He blasts Superman from his arm cannon. In Shanghai, Kong Kennan is watching this. And he asks Dr. Omen, how long does it take to get to America from Shanghai? Uh, Superman is now un seemingly unconscious. Zod is holding him up by one wrist. Um, and he says, L is not employing a strategy of false weakness, Cyborg. It's real. He is simply inferior. You could have been a warrior. A tribute to your people, not some limp, pathetic creature. And uh, at that point, Zod punches Superman and sends him slamming back down into the street of a large city below them. Uh, Zod uses his x-ray vision and sees that Superman has burrowed into a drain pipe and is used hit to get away. Um, um, the Eradicator says it is beyond comprehension for a true son of Krypton to run away like that. Um, Zod is determined to go after him. The cyborg tells him not to. Zod says, I don't take orders from you. And then Henshaw says, we, I'm only suggesting you marshal our forces and plan something a military genius like you should appreciate. And Zod says, that's more like it. So he's perfectly happy to go along with the cyborg's ideas. He just doesn't want to be ordered to do so. Um, meanwhile, Superman is flying back to Hamilton County. He flies back to the Kent farm. Um, as John and Lois pull up in their car, they see him land. He lands and then kneels down. And Lois says he's hurt. Superman says, the black vault did something to me. And Lois asks, what's wrong? And Superman says, that's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm afraid it's my eyes, Lois. I can't see. I'm blind. And as we get a really good look at Superman's face, we see that his pupils and the 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 blue that would normally be around them are is gray or a very, very faded hue of blue. And so that explains all the thought bubbles that where Superman is trying to use his hearing to find his opponents instead of just looking for them and so forth, um, which will, of course, make the fight against um, the rest of the Revenge Squad that much worse. If he 
if he wasn't able to hold his own against three of them, who are all at least as powerful as he is, holding his own against six of them while he's blind will definitely be an overwhelming challenge. Pretty good issue. Um, Jack Herbert's pencils are good. I mean, they're not like Jorge Jimenez good. They're not like Doug Mankey good, but they're very solid. You know, very, very serviceable job. No complaints whatsoever. You know, nothing super fancy, uh, very house style kind of thing, but it definitely gets the job done and I'm not displeased with it. Um, beyond that, um, some of the, some of the dialogue's a little bit clunky, but, um, I don't know. I, I do feel like this story is going on just a little bit too long. I think this is part four, maybe. Um, oh goodness. No, it's, <laughs> it's only part three. Well, maybe that, maybe that says something. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I always, it, whenever I'm in the middle of one of these story arcs and action comics from this era, I usually kind of lose interest. By the end of the arc, it usually picks back up. Um, and like I said, with with Jurgens in this series, up until he till up until Reborn, he was building towards something very specific. Um, after this arc, he goes. Uh, back to focusing on the specific plans that he has involving Superman and Lex and some other stuff that I'm not going to spoil if you're not familiar with this era. But it's usually right in the middle that I start to kind of lose focus. Usually it's up a six-part arc, usually parts three and four kind of start to feel like a bit of a slog. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. Again, I have not finished this arc previously, I ended up skipping over it my first read through to kind of read what came after it. Um, so I have I have really high hopes. I have a lot of positivity. Um, like I said, I, I'm a big fan of Dan Jurgens, um, and I, I'm looking forward to to seeing where it goes. But we'll find that out in the next few weeks. So I'm going to take a break. I am going to run an ad, and I will be back in just a few seconds to talk about what is this monstrosity called again uh, oh my goodness uh, dark days the forge so stay with me hang on pals don't hit that fast forward button yet from this point on truth justice and hope will be an ad free podcast now i put that last little bit that i had been putting into almost every show about getting ready to drop an ad into this spot earlier this week and I've learned since then that since Anchor has been fully absorbed by Spotify and Anchor is now Spotify for podcasters that they have changed their monetization criteria and as part of that new criteria they will no longer be monetizing smaller podcasts like mine. Now the good news for you the listener is again you don't have to hit the fast forward button at this point in the show. Um, and I don't blame you if you have. I almost always skip the ads in the shows that I listen to. Um, but the unfortunate side effect of this is that while the show has a relatively small overhead, it does build up over time. And 
I had been relying on the monetization of the show to cover part of that overhead. And as a result, the support of Patreon subscribers is now more important for the show than ever before. So if you enjoy Truth, Justice, and Hope, and if you'd like to help support it, please consider subscribing over at patreon.com slash truthjusticeandhope. It is a $3 a month subscription. For that amount, you get four episodes every month of my favorite classic post-crisis Superman stories. I've got a ton of content up there. The, the content began with 1987's Pocket Universe Superboy Saga, and we are currently up to the second month of Reign of the Superman from 1983. So you get a lot of bonus reward content for your $3. And again, if you have the means to, to donate, and if it is in your heart to do so, I would greatly appreciate it. So with that said, let's get back to some comic books. And we're back. And Dark Days The Forge number one is also cover dated June 14th of 2017. And this has a massive creative team. It is co-written by Scott Snyder and James Tinian IV, who will go on to work on uh, Justice League No Justice and the Justice League series that takes place between Metal and Dark Metal. Jim Lee, Andy Kubert, and John Romita Jr. co-penciled. Scott Williams, Klaus Jansen. That is a classic. And Danny Mickey did the inks. Alex Sinclair with Jeremiah Skipper did the colors. Steve Wands did the letters. Jim Lee, Scott Williams, and Alex Sinclair did the main cover. Um, Andy Kubert, Brad Anderson, John Romita Jr., Danny Mickey, and Alex Sinclair did the variant covers. So let's take a look at those covers. Um, so I will be very honest about two things. One, I am pretty over Jim Lee. I really liked Jim Lee in the early 90s when he was still on X-Men. Those issues still have a warm place in my heart. By Wildcats, I was getting tired of his work and I would say probably in the mid-2000s. I was pretty over Lee. But, depending on who is inking him and who is coloring him, Jim Lee still puts out some amazing work, and this cover is amazing. Um, I should preface my discussion of this, that Superman is only in this issue very briefly, um, which gives me enough justification to talk about it in detail. But like I said at the beginning of the episode, I am a sucker for major crossover events, and this sets up metal, so we're going to talk about it. Um, but the cover is of Batman on this rock outcropping. And he has, a, I'm a sucker for this look that he's wearing. He's got on his traditional, well, not his traditional, his, his definitely his rebirth era suit, you know, slash new 52 suit, the gray suit with the, with the black highlights, uh, no trunks, black belt, black cape, black cowl, black boots and mask, and the kind of the, it's definitely more of an armor than a suit or light armor. 
And then he's got a backpack on over the cape, and he's holding a torch in his right hand, and he's got these big 90s pouches on his belt and on a thigh strap. And, you know, having been an older teenager, young 20-something in the early 90s, when the pouches were big, um, even in even in DC and Marvel, I I'm still a sucker for the pouches, and it looks really cool. I, I love it. But what he's doing on this rock outcropping is looking up at this massive statue of a of a figure in bat like armor with one hand clenched into a fist and another stretched out in an authoritarian salute and in the background is all these ruined buildings and these very, very high tech drones floating over the city, casting bat signals down on the city itself. And there are all these, um, like almost religious banners with the Batman symbol on it. It's a really cool cover. I, I gotta admit, I, I like bat Jim Lee's Batman more than I like Jim Lee's Superman. The variant cover by Kubert, um, and I know I've talked about it on here before with some of the variant covers on some of the recent issues of Action Comics. I love Andy Kubert. This is a really cool cover. This is Batman and Aquaman on a rock outcropping, and all we have in the background is like flames and darkness and smoke. And Aquaman has one arm raised high, holding his trident, getting ready to cast it or thrust it downward at something coming up toward them. And Batman is kneeling on the rock rock outcropping with his right hand thrown across his body, shielding himself with his cape and then the cape flaring out behind him. It's it's great. Just a lot of excellent dynamic motion. The variant cover, the one that features Superman by J.R.J.R., is of Batman and Superman flying out of the fortress side by side, flying toward the reader. Um, and Batman is wearing some kind of flying rig. And I'm just going to say, I don't love this cover. Moving on. So we open with internal monologue from Carter Hall, a.k.a. Hawkman, reminiscing about his earliest memory as Prince Khufu back in ancient Egypt. And when uh, remembering how a... A message from a young child who saw a shooting star in the sky sent he and his advisors and his wife, you know, scrambling out into the desert by horseback to find the source. And they 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 raced to where the star, the the shooting star crashed, in there, or where it was headed to crash its trajectory. And then they see it as the Stanagarian starship that is careening across the sky, just above them. One of its wings highly damaged. And about to crash. Um, and um, yeah, his internal monologue, it's, it's like he's writing a journal. He said, something was coming, something wondrous. A message from the gods, perhaps? A sign? But it was no sign. It was a clue to the greatest mystery in the history of mankind. And it was written in metal. Now, I will talk more about Hawkman as we go further into this issue. It's not bad. It's just, there's a, there's a lot to dissect. So we go from there to the Bermuda Triangle, and there's a volcanic uh, island, and it is fit in the pot. But there is a highly 
advanced scientific on this base. And the scientist who was working on the base said the tremor started 40 minutes ago and it only gotten worse. He doesn't know if the research team made it out in time. It'll be too late for him. The lava will go off the base in minutes. He stayed to protect what they've been researching, what they've learned. They've kept uh, reading and rereading the data, hoping it wasn't true. But there's something wrong with the Earth's core. There's something in the metal. And then this big, giant pair of fiery hands covered in lava smashes through the wall. And it reaches for the scientists. And then we realize that it's Batman in a giant robot suit. And he opens the cockpit to the suit and tells Dr. Madison, the scientist waiting, that the only way out is through the lava to get in. And so we go from there to where Batman and Dr. Madison inside this suit. Uh, these the I should say um, that the transition from one artist to another is not dependent on scene. Um, it's not like... Lee does one scene and Kubert does another scene and Romina does another. It just shifts abruptly. But so far, as far as I can tell, we have been consistently uh, working with Kubert's pencils, at this, which is perfectly fine with me. Love Andy Kubert. But in the robot suit, they are swimming down through the lava, um, needing to break through to the open ocean. The suit's about to break apart. Uh, we see the Aquaman and a bunch of dolphins are swimming toward uh, what is now the wreckage of this giant bat suit where Batman and uh, Dr. Madison ejected out into the ocean at the last second. Uh, Batman asks Aquaman to take uh, the scientist to the surface. Batman says he is going, he's, they've got like a breathing apparatus thing in his mouth. He's going to retrieve the data card from the pressure suit. And Aquaman says, the lava flow will consume that behemoth in seconds. Leave it. Batman says, I can't. He swims down, gets this huge data card. He comes back up. Um, the rest of the scientists are safe. Um, and Aquaman says, this is a Wayne Enterprise black site, an off-the-books drilling operation in my domain. You weren't just keeping this place hidden from the surface world. You were keeping it hidden from Atlantis, from me. What are you looking for? And Batman says, with what I know is locked underneath Atlantis, is that really a question you want to ask me? Now, I don't think that's a question we get answered for a while. Now, I could be wrong. It could be something from the Justice League series, but I don't think so. Uh, Snyder and Tinian like to keep their stuff very well self-contained. I don't think we're going to get that answered until probably the second or third arc of the Justice League series that takes place between metal and dark metal. And it's a big deal, but we'll find out. Now, as Batman and Aquaman are talking, we see the outline of a, a cloaked airship. And the pilot of the ship, who's wearing a, you know, like a full like high-pressure gear you know, mask and, and helmet thing, you can't see anything about their faces, um, that... Um, that Batman can look all he wants, but he won't find what he's looking for. Lady Blackhawk to control. Bring me home. Now, and here we switch to Jim Lee's pencils. Now, this was a pretty pretty good transition. Um, but again, the those transitions are sometimes mid-scene. But so far, we've been pretty good about switching one-one scene switches. 
And we go to Mogo, which is the living planet, the sentient planet. This is the headquarters of the Green Lantern Corps. And Ganthet is ordering Hal Jordan to go to Earth on a Black Ops mission. This is off the books. And there is uh, rumblings in every corner of the universe, whispers of a stirring in the dark. A terrible truth is coming to light on your home planet, and we must not let it. And Jordan says, are these the coordinates? Is this the source of the threat? And we see that the source is Wayne Manor. Now, I think this is the first time we've seen Hal Jordan in this podcast. I am not a massive Hal Jordan fan. Um, I'm not a huge Green Lantern fan in general, but when it comes to lanterns, my preference is Kyle. Because, again, older teen, early 20s, you know, all, 20s all through the 90s, um, Kyle was the Green Lantern that I read in, you know, back in the day. And it's the one I liked most. I was introduced to Hal Jordan during the Super Friends cartoon. I tried reading some, some Hal Jordan, uh, Green Lantern comics in the eighties. I never gravitated towards them. My favorite version of Hal Jordan is nineties parallax. Honestly, I don't like the, the Jeff Johns retcon of what Parallax really is. I like Parallax when he was just uh, a Hal Jordan whose psyche was broken. But he is back for, for better or for worse. I know there's a lot of people who really like him. If that's your thing, you know, more power to you. It's just not my preference. So Hal, he flies down into the Batcave and he's looking around and he's saying, you know, he's basically... Hal Jordan does not like Batman very much, and he's talking about how creepy the Batcave is. But then Duke Thomas jumps out of nowhere and kicks Hal Jordan in the face. Now, Duke Thomas is Batman's latest sidekick at this point. He is a... Uh, he does not have a code name, but he has this really... Yet, he will eventually come to be known as the Signal. But he has this really cool black and yellow costume with a, with a helmet and a visor that covers his face and... A pair of uh, a scream of sticks strapped to his back. It's a really, really cool look. And he, he apologizes. He says um, that Batman ordered nobody allowed in the cave right now, not even family. Um, Hal Jordan subdues him with a giant hand. Um, Duke Thomas says something about, you know, I thought your green lantern ring didn't work on uh, yellow. And, of course, that's reference to that. how that doesn't work anymore. That is one part of the John's retcon that I do like about how, you know, all through the 90s, Kyle's ring did not have the yellow vulnerability. It was just written as he had a special ring where the vulnerability had been written out. Um, but it was later revealed that because Kyle was more, you know, more, in, he wasn't a, a fearless champion, that he was just a regular guy that he was able to overcome fear like that. And so the rest of the lanterns learned from Kyle's example and were able to learn to overcome the yellow impurity. Um, but uh, Hal says, you know, look, kid, I'm sorry, but I've been ordered to check this out and that's what I'm going to do. And there's really nothing you can do to stop me. And Hal finds a, um, basically a hidden, a, a secret cave within the back cave hidden behind a hologram. Now we go from a place called the Campia, uh, the Campus, which is a mile beneath Philadelphia, and we have a character called the Immortal Man, who is mostly a pre-crisis character. He's a guy who has lived countless lives, 
and every time he dies, he's resurrected. And I think he was written to be kind of a counterpoint to Vandal Savage. And that character died in, in Crisis on Infinite Earths. There was a version of this character in the 90s called Resurrection Man, where every time he was killed, he would be reborn. That's the same person, just with a different power. But this appears to be the original version. And he is talking to a unknown figure in a hoodie, um, where they have this secret collection of superhumans called the Immortal Men that are waiting to face this oncoming threat. Now, these characters are not referenced again in the series. They get their own short-lived series after Metal. So it is not really um, pertinent. They do talk about how Duke Thomas's mom was infected with the Joker virus, or Joker toxin, and she is being uh, held in a containment um, cell in Wayne Manor for her own protection and the protection of others. So from there we go back to uh, Carter Hall reminiscing about his history since he was resurrected, since he and, and his wife became functionally immortal, where every time they die, they come back as a new person and they have their collective memories. Um, and we get a shot of them in as the mm, pre-flash no, not pre-Flashpoint, pre-zero-hour version. So we should talk about Hawkman for a minute. Now, the uh, in the modern age, there are two Hawkmen. There's Carter Hall and his wife, Sierra Hall, Hawkman and Hawkgirl. And they were archaeologists who kind of unlocked their, their resurrection memories. And they were the Hawkman and Hawkgirl of World War II era, who were still relatively young and vital going into the 90s through various magic and so forth. And then there was the alien Katar Hall and Shierathal, who were the um, hawk man and hawk woman of the quote-unquote modern age, basically the Silver Age version. And during Zero Hour, um, Carter Hall and Shiera, I'm sorry, Shiera Saunders, um got merged with Katar Hole to become this, like, gestalt hot god being. And I'm pretty sure that version died at some point. Um, and then Carter Hall was resurrected in the early 2000s as himself. He was brought back to life as himself. Shiera, um, her spirit reincarnated inside the body of her niece, um, Kendra Saunders, who had just committed suicide, but she had all of Kendra's memories. Um, so she was functionally Kendra, just with this resurrection link. And I wanted to like that version of Hawkman a lot because I like the, I like the concept behind Hawkman. I like just this character who uses all these like ancient melee weapons, like spears and maces and stuff. I think that's really cool. Jeff Johns' Hawkman was an aggro dude, bro, who was kind of a stalker. Um, and I am very vague on what's been going on with Hawkman since the New 52. I know the Hawkman of New 52 was Katar Hull, um, who somehow was back to life, or maybe had never died in the New 52 continuity, and he was wearing this very life-feldian battle armor. Um, 
I don't know if he's already died again by this point. I know he there is a story arc where he is killed, called the death of Hawkman, around this era. I don't know what's been going on with Carter Hall. Um, now Carter wakes up from this dream of all his past lives, and then this dream of this authoritarian Batman statue that has all these dead bodies strapped to its legs. By the way, it's really gruesome. He wakes up, and there's a woman in bed next to him. I don't know who that's supposed to be. I don't think it's supposed to be Shara. I know it's not supposed to be Kendra, um, because we'll, what we'll see later. So I don't know if this is a, a hookup that Carter's had. Um, and I don't know. We'll talk more about Kendra later on in this series. But... Um, Carter's thinking, you know, in his memoir that he needs to follow this trail of a nightmare that echoes through metal. And he looks over and he sees his morning star hanging on the wall. That's, I, I think the morning stars are cool. Uh, I know that they're brutal implements of destruction, but there's just something viscerally cool about a big studded mace. I don't know what to tell you. Now, from there, we go to Batman's lunar moon base. Um, that we've talked about here on the show a few times in the past. It was used heavily in the Eradicator uh, story arc in the eponymous Superman title. The Revenge Squad is using it as their headquarters in Action Comics. But again, Snyder keeps this stuff pretty well self-contained. So, you know, that's already been dealt with, or it hasn't happened yet as far as the story arc is concerned. Uh, concerned because Batman just teleports up there. He sticks this memory drive that he stole, that he swiped from the the mecha suit into the computers, and uh, he hears someone behind him. He turns around and he throws a bunch of batarangs, and it's Mister Terrific. And Mister Terrific deflects the batarangs with his T spheres. Uh, we are now on to JRJR. Um, there are some very cool panels in this, like the panel of Batman turning around and throwing the batarangs looks really great. Mr. Terrific looks weird, and I don't know so much that it's J.R.J.R.'s fault. I think it's the coloring. Normally, the mask that Mr. Terrific wears um, on his face is colored black. Here it's colored red, which is just weird. I don't know if that's a New 52 thing. Or if it's just a coloring miscommunication. Or maybe they were trying something new out. But it doesn't really work. But uh, Batman has called Mr. Terrific in to help him with this mystery of uh, this this mysterious data that he has pulled from the bat suit um, that his scientists were working on out in the Bermuda Triangle. Um, but... Uh, they're looking at the data, and Mr. Terrific says, uh, I honestly have no idea. I have an IQ of 179, but I have no idea what any of this means. Uh, the frequency that's being generated across the worlds is growing stronger. Uh, this Mr. Terrific, by the way, is from the new 52 version of Earth 2. Uh, and I think they've just kind of phased that out. He is just like, well, I've crossed over to this world now, and that's where I'm working on. So they go into another part of the Batcave, and they're talking about where they need to activate him. And he is what's needed. It's time to let him out of the box. And we see that the him that needs to be let out of the box is Plastic Man, who has taken on an egg-like form and is being held in some kind of stasis. 
Now, again, this is setting up a lot of stuff that we're not going to see again until after this miniseries is over. I don't think Plastic Man comes out of the egg form until the Terrifics series, which is too bad because it would have been neat to see what they did with him in this series. So we go back to the Batcave and we're still on JRJR's artwork. So now we're to the point where we're not switching from scene to scene anymore. We're just kind of keeping one artist through multiple scenes and then switching artists in the middle of scenes, um, which is fine. And uh, Hal Jordan is using his ring to light the way and Duke Thomas is following him. And Hal asks, what is this place? And this mysterious voice from out of nowhere says, oh, I can clear that up for you. And Hal's ring begins to fits out, kind of, you know, because of fizzle. It cannot comply. And Hal says it's starting to burn his hand. And Hal says it doesn't make any sense. And the mysterious voice says it wouldn't, would it? And mystery never does at first. Uh, He says, but our, our friend with the pointy ears has been following it for years now. It all started with a tooth, a metal tooth that could bring the dead back to life. The bedrock of his organization this stretched back centuries, referring to the Court of Owls. I have not read that in a long time. I think I read the Court of Owls arc maybe in like 2012, 2013. I really liked it. I really wanted to go back and read the entirety of Snyder's run on Batman in the New 52. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. But um, the mysterious voice says, a metal shouldn't be able to do what this electrum could do. No compound of gold and silver could make the dead talons walk again. And so that began uh, Batman's quest to find out this mysterious uh, secret of this particular metal, which led him to be researching other mysterious metals. And we see in the Batcave that there's holograms of Dr. Fate's helmet, Aquaman's trident, and Wonder Woman's bracers. And um, the mysterious voice says, So he formed his first team, the first of many tasks with investigating all this, a team that can move outside Batman's usual realm of influence. And we get a hologram of Batman and the Outsiders, which is really neat. Now, this is a very updated version of the of the 80s uh, team. We have uh, Batman in his new 52 armored suit. We have Metamorpho, who looks more like the offshoot of Metamorpho called Shift from the early 2000s Outsiders. We have a very different costume for Black Lightning. We have the new 52 version of Katana. We have Geoforce looking kind of like how Geoforce always does. Halo has this insane costume that is like a giant spiraling rainbow. And she looks a lot like a character from the Morlocks that J.R.J.R. drew way back in the early 80s. I can't remember their name, but it was a female character who could do something with colors. And that's kind of neat, but it's also kind of kind of goofy looking, but also kind of cool. Um, and this mysterious voice keeps like luring them on and on to come down into the cave. And uh, Duke is like, you know, Green Lantern, we need to get out of here now. And Hal says, no, you're right. We need to get out of here. My ring isn't working. It's burning my finger, but we've got to go on. This voice keeps luring them on. And they see this hologram of this kind of green liquid metal in a shimmering tube. And the voice says it's something called Dionysium. Um, I did my research on what this was. Uh, oh, that it's the metal 
that was in the meteorite that gave uh, Vandal Savage his immortality, and it's infused in the waters of the Lazarus pits that Ra's al Ghul uses. And, uh, and so they demand to know what's going on. They demand to know, you know who they are, who is talking to them. Um, but Jordan insists on pressing on. Um, the voice is actually taunting him. It's like, oh, Mr. Green Lantern, are you afraid? And Jordan said, I don't get afraid. Let's go, kid. So they keep going deeper and down into this, into this like sub-basement of the Batcave. Um, because when you are about to learn something, you will never be able to unlearn. Something that puts all the pieces together and you finally see the truth and the world changes. And you know it'll never go back the way it was before. But if you're so very brave... Just open the door. Now, from there, we go back to Carter Hall's, um, like his journal, and we see what he's been doing, and we see where he has got all these trophies behind him in his research lab. He's got all these different Hawkman helmets and a suit of like a breastplate and a gauntlet and a shield that kind of look Aztec and kind of look um, ancient Egyptian. There's this like man giant manhunter robot head which is weird and um and he's got these three stone tablets and one has an image of a bird one has an image of a bear and one has an image of a wolf and he's talking about these three tribes that were the first origins of civilization but then he found a fourth tribe and that one has a symbol of a bat and he's and we pull back and we see where he's in this massive chamber that looks like a Egyptian temple. And he's got the Thanagarian ship and all these golden statues and golden sphinxes and all this alien weaponry and all this archaic weaponry. And he's thinking, I was part of something bigger, something beyond my control. And I would do everything in my power to uncover what had been taken from me. The secret that stretched back to the dawn of my species, no matter what the cost. Now from there we go to the Arctic Circle where Batman is landing the X-Men's Blackbird outside of the fortress. He walks up to the entrance to the fortress. He says, Clark, I know you're in there. Let me in. Superman opens the door and says, you know, it wouldn't kill you to say please every now and then. And Batman says, I think actually it might. So they go inside and Batman says, there's a room you gave me years ago, deep under the fortress. I ask that you never look at what I put inside. And Superman says, I never have not once. Batman says, I told you the day would come when I would need to open that door and I would have to walk through it alone. Um, and Superman says, I've seen that door, Bruce. There's nothing from this world that can open it. And that's when we pull back and we see that Mr. Miracle has snuck in. He says, that's why he called me. Now we switch artists in the middle of the scene from J.R.J.R. to Jim Lee. And um, they are going through the fortress to this door that looks kind of like a giant keyhole. And this chamber inside the fortress looks like a, looks like a small igloo, not igloo, a small glacier inside the bigger glacier-like structure that is the Fortress of Solitude. And uh, Mr. Miracle is saying, you build a secret room at the top of the world with one door and a lock that no human could ever unlock. What would you do with the key? And Batman says, I shot it into the sun. Um, so Mr. Miracle, he goes through the keyhole shaped door. It begins glowing purple 
and there's an explosion, and Mr. Miracle comes flying out on his little new, apocalypse, um, new Genesis flying discs, and he says, Batman, that can't be what I think it is. You can't have been stupid enough to. Batman dismisses Mr. Miracle. Mr. Miracle disappears in a boom tube. Batman goes inside the the remnants of this the exploded door, and we see that it is one of the monitors' resonance towers from Crisis on Infinite Earths. And while we're seeing this, we're also getting bits of Carter Hall's journal. It says, I wish I could go back to that moment and warn myself. I write this journal for anyone foolish enough to pick up my trail. Whatever you do, do not follow it in my footsteps. And Batman says, like a compass. Computer, run all vibrational data through the tower. We should be able to track the exact dimensional frequency of the dark energy. So he's taking this data that his research facility in the Bermuda Triangle collected, and he's running it through this resonance tower. And uh, while this is going on, Green Lantern and Duke Thomas had made their way to the very bottom of the basement. They found the subject that has been talking to them. Now, how the voice carried all the way, I don't know. But they come up behind him, and he says, this is a mystery that stretches back to the dawn of time. It's bigger than all of us, and it sure as hell is bigger than you. You just don't understand. All of that was just a cruel joke. You're just another couple of pieces of Batman's puzzle, just like me. And what we find out is the source of this voice is Batman's prisoner, who is the Joker. Now, I'll be honest, I don't know if this is the Joker or one of the Jokers. Because I know there was a three Joker story arc. One of them supposedly died. Something with a face getting cut off. Blah, blah, blah. But this Joker is down in this sub, sub, sub basement of the Batcave. Scrawling numbers on the wall. And he knows whatever this deep, dark secret is. And he knows that whatever it is, is going to change the world and not for the better. So that is our prelude, or one of the preludes, to Dark Knight's Metal. Now, the second prelude called Dark Days the Casting, I will probably just talk about as an overview um, in a few weeks. It comes out, it was cover dated July 12th, so when we get to when that issue was coming out concurrently with the others, I'll discuss it uh, because it's it sets up what we're going to be seeing in metal. But I don't think Superman is in it at all, so we probably will not be going on a deep dive into it. But that is all the comic books that we are going to talk about this week, pals. So I am going to take a quick break, and I'll be right back. And that does it for episode 61 of Truth, Justice, and Hope, a Superman podcast. Um, I am very excited to start our first event for the show. I'm Obviously, this event is a few years old. I'm sure many of you have read it, but and I have read it myself. I've read it a couple times. I'm excited to talk about it. Like I said, I'm a sucker for event. Um, it's a good time and I'm looking forward to keeping going with it. Obviously it's gonna, it's throwing off the, the format of the reading rotation, but that's okay. I'm, I'm 
willing to, to make some sacrifices for the greater good. And I do hope you enjoyed uh, this episode as much as I enjoyed talking about it. If you do like what I'm doing here on the show, if you'd like to show your appreciation in a financial way, and if you'd like to help support the show, you can do so on my Patreon at patreon.com slash truth, justice, and hope. For just $3 a month, you get a ton of rewards. I have an insane amount of coverage of my favorite classic post-crisis Superman stories, beginning with 1987's Pocket Universe Superboy Saga, and I'm currently starting the second month of Reign of the Superman, which will be out uh, later on this week, probably the day after you guys hear this episode. Um, that, like I said, is a lot of reward coverage over there, and so if you like uh, how I talk about relatively modern-day comics, and if you'd like to hear my take on some classic 90s, some late 80s, early 90s so far, be sure to jump on over there. It would mean a lot to me. Um, If you guys would like to interact with me, you can do so by searching for Truth, Justice, and Hope on the socials medias. Uh, You can do so on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and as well on Spoutable. If you're not familiar with Spoutable, it is a uh, very progressive, uh, left-leaning alternative to Twitter. It does not have an app out yet, but it is browser-based at the moment, and um, I'm enjoying it a lot. It It is very... Very refreshing. It seems to be troll-free so far, which is super nice. Uh, if you'd like to reach out to me directly, you can also do that at truthjusticeandhope at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Any questions or comments you have, please send them my way. Next week, we're going to continue the ball rolling with the eponymous Superman series with issue 25 of that book. And we're going to talk about New Superman number 11. I know I just talked about Eponymous Superman and New Superman last issue. I'm trying to keep things on a reading rotation based on publication order. And um, basically just the way they come out is that Eponymous Superman comes out and then action comes out and back and forth and back and forth. So I'll do that. And if you have any thoughts about those issues you'd like to send to me ahead of time, I would love to talk about them during my discussion of those comics. So again, search for Truth, Justice, and Hope on your social media platforms, and you can email me directly at truthjusticeandhope at gmail.com. But until I can talk to you guys again next week, remember to fight fear at every turn with an open mind and an open heart. Love you.